Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Daisy Johnson. Daisy is the author of one short story collection, Fen, and two novels, the latest of which, Sisters, was published early this year to much critical acclaim. Her first novel, Everything Under, was shortlisted for the 2018 Man Booker Prize, which made her the youngest writer ever to be nominated in the history of the award. She's also contributed a brilliantly eerie story to Virago's recently published collection, Hag, Forgotten Folk Tales Retold. Welcome to Our Shells, Daisy. It's such a joy to be chatting to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be here. (laughs) I want to talk briefly about your story in Hag retelling, um, because it's so deliciously dark and creepy. uh, And I found myself completely captivated, particularly by... um, I can't, I can't stop thinking about, I don't want to spoil it and kind of give away anything, but I can't stop thinking about the kind of weird ending to it. Um, and I was also thinking about this, the, there was a brilliant review in The Guardian recently of Sisters, where they called you the demon offspring of Shirley Jackson and Stephen King. Um, and then I've also been listening to your interconnected uh, sort of stories, The Hotel on Radio 4. And again, I think I was dreaming about, I think, which is the episode about the two girls, Infestation, it really stuck with me and I can't stop thinking about that. Um, and so I was thinking a little bit about kind of, you know, obviously the sort of genre that you write in. And I think um, both Fen and Everything Under have these elements of what I think some people have called sort of folk, uh, almost sort of folk horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but more recently, you seem to be really fully embracing the sort of gothic genre. And I wondered if you could explain a little bit about what the attraction for you is um, here, or whether you have any particular key influences, things that you've read or you've watched over the years that have sort of molded the way that you're writing at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, so I've always really loved horror and um, I was born on Halloween. So from a very young age, my parents, <laughs> <laughs> which is no, no surprise to anyone, my parents had these sort of epic Halloween birthdays where we'd, they'd kind of fill rooms with spider webs and we'd sort of have ghost tours around the town. Wow. Um, so I, I quite enjoyed that sort of um, almost feeling of being scared, you know, that, that feeling of being on the edge of being frightened and not quite being sure um what's there and kind of my parents bought me my first Stephen King um and I read that in sort of I think awe that someone could make you feel this way and that someone could balance scenes in that way 
Um, and then when I started writing, the horror has always sort of been there underneath the surface. In a lot of things I write, um, there's a monster or there's something that you can't quite see or there's some kind of truth which is just out of um, just out of view. And then really, I think I knew I wanted to tr see if I could write something more traditionally gothic and more traditionally scary. Um, I think it was sort of an experiment for myself to see what I could do. And I, in particular, I think rereading Shirley Jackson, I thought I wanted to do something about the haunted house I really love the haunted house and how it relates to the body and how Shirley Jackson kind of has these characters being trapped in these places um so that's really where a lot of things started coming from um but obviously I think as with every writer you have an idea and as you write it changes and um though there are elements of the gothic in or in all of those things I think they became about something else as well, um, particularly Sisters, I think, um, my novel really became about the relationship between those two girls. Um, yeah. I love that. I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by siblings at the best of times. Um, but I love, I was wondering, it's a really, it's a, maybe a slightly random question, but have you ever read um, Daphne du Maurier's novel, The Parasites? I don't know if you've come across this before. It's a Virago modern classic. So, you know, topical in more ways than one here. But it's the only other novel that I can think of where it's, it, I think the beginning, the first sort of um, section of Sisters, if I remember correctly, you're, it's sort of um, narrated in the first person plural, the we between the the September and July, the sisters. The Parasites, I think, is such a wonderful book. It's about these three siblings, very different setup, very different kind of genre, but it's narrated in this first person collective. And I've never come across this before, this we. And I love the idea of siblings that are so close together, so interconnected that you can kind of be in each other's mind almost. Um, and I, yeah, I, I just think, I think maybe you'd be interested in it slightly if, if, you're, if you're thinking about those relationships. Obviously, you're probably done with sisters now that it's, um, you know, you wrote it a long time ago and it's out in the world but anyway yeah I'd love to read that that sounds brilliant um yeah I think the wee voice is really creepy and also really difficult to do and I um it always makes me think of I guess virgin suicides by um, yes and that sort of um a voice which I guess becomes a voice for the generation and for the mm -hmm. times they're living in and I think that's also what I wanted to do with sisters was sort of talk about um what it is to live now with social media and how that changes your relationship to one another and this sort of um you know the certainty of the internet which actually isn't very certain at all um mm -hmm. but I also coincidentally I think um read Daphne du Maurier's um Don't Look Now have you read yes so, and I didn't know she'd written it I'd seen the sort of very sexy film yeah. <laughs> <laughs> person who wrote it and I think um that sort of that sense of what horror does to place I think is so fascinating and how um I never thought of Venice as a scary place I don't think until mm -hmm. I read that and then I thought actually of course it is quite creepy and you know it's very easy to get lost the signs all point in different directions and um yeah I think horror can take very banal things very domestic things almost and make them incredibly frightening well, I think um, that links in with one of the things I was thinking about how you write horror so well is that your work is very grounded in reality. Like you were saying that the elements of social media that come into play in Sisters, um, the short stories, Fan, um, you know, uh, even everything under, there are so, it's so grounded in the sort of, in a recognisable reality, whether it's, you know, somebody using the microwave to cook something or whether it is this kind of element of social media, all these various things. And then I think what you draw on so well is that then when 
when it snaps into the sort of the horror, you get this sense of the sort of unheimlich, you know, the uncanny, where the familiar suddenly becomes unfamiliar. And that for me is, you know, the cornerstone of the genre. Like you have to be able to, if you start out in sort of obviously a scare, you know, maybe I'm, I know something like you know Shirley Jackson, um, the Haunting of Hell House. It does it really well because it has got the haunted house in the beginning. But you have to be such a master to do that. And and actually, often I find that the things that are scarier, the things that you think you recognise, you think you know, and then they turn on you in that way. I suppose. Mm, yeah, I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. And I like what you're saying about Venice as well. It's such a because yes, of course, there's so many ideas about it being a wonderfully romantic city, a kind of a place you, you know, go and there's lots of light and lots of, you know, and actually what De Maurier did was turn it on its head and show you this really dark side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still surprised in a way that more people don't know that she wrote that weirdly. And I think the birds as well, a lot of people don't have any idea that she wrote the original short story that the Hitchcock film is based on, um, which is brilliant. And in a way, I think, I don't know, I haven't read it for a while, but to me, I always thought it was more creepy than the film. And the film is brilliant, but, you know, just shows what you can do with a great story, I suppose. I didn't know that, that she'd written The Birds. That's really amazing. I'll have to find it. No, find it. Yeah, it seems like some of her more culty things have been a bit buried. Some of the more traditional horror stuff has been a bit hidden underneath Rebecca, I guess. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think a lot of people don't know about all the different genres she wrote in because she did also, she's written sort of weird sci-fi. She wrote a sort of Brexit novel before, years before Brexit. Um, But I think the horror stories are actually really, really good. A lot of the short stories. And The Birds is set in Cornwall, so very different to the um, the, uh, uh, West Coast, isn't it? It's kind of up. Um, past San Francisco the film is set Um, so it's very different environment but the kind of creepy sort of cold Cornish environment with the farms and oh it it works brilliantly it's yeah terribly yeah I almost don't want to read it again because I remember being so shocked the first time round yeah give it a go I think you might like it I think you might like it a lot Right, let's push on with the questions then. Otherwise, I feel like we'd be talking about like, it turns into a sort of De Maurier fan club podcast, yeah. which is not not a bad thing, but something slightly different to what we're supposed to be doing, perhaps. Um, so, first up, Daisy, I wanted to ask you what books are currently on your bedside table. Hmm. Yeah, so my bedside table, I think, like a lot of people's um, at the moment, is a complete mess. It's sort of an explosion. <laughs> everything I want to read and everything I'm trying to reread. So I'm rereading Self-Portrait by Celia Paul at the moment, um, which is this book about, um, non-fiction book by Celia Paul about her experience being an artist, but also being um, for quite a long time, uh, Lucian Freud's girlfriend and then the mother of his child. And um, it's brilliant, I think, on this sense in the art world um, that perhaps as a woman, you can't be um you can't be a woman and as an artist there's something you have to give away and I think you know it is that sort of idea of the the pram in the hallway um but even but even larger that I think at times Celia Paul sort of talks about having to give away some of the idea of gender or sexuality at all um to make art um and also I think very interesting on um the idea of there's a lot of bits in the book of her drawing her child and then also and kind of wondering whether she should be doing this and you know what we do to the people um around us when we put them into our art which I think is always relevant for writers because I think inevitably um you steal things you know writers are magpies and um yeah stuff appears in the writing even if you don't mean it to um I've also been reading um Poor by Caleb Femi which is um this collection of poetry about um about where he grew up in London 
um, this sort of um, group of concrete towers, which also which are all joined at the top, so you don't have to go down to the ground, and which were destroyed a while ago. Um, but sort of his experience of growing up there and being a black man, um, and it has this one these wonderful thoughts about kind of the porousness of concrete, um, and it's written mm. almost like a I think like nature poetry, um, but it is about these sort of concrete towers. Those are both really fascinating. Do you read a lot of poetry? Is it something that you're quite a fan of? I actually didn't before this year really read very much poetry or nonfiction, and I'm trying to fix that a bit. I'm trying to kind of widen um, my gaze a little bit and really, really enjoying it, I think. Do you think, um, is that important? Did you feel that it was both poetry and nonfiction were sort of missing in your life and that you were maybe missing books that, you know, would just bring something to it? Or was it... Um, uh, kind of conscious decision as a writer that you wanted to kind of see how other people were doing their their side of things mm. yeah I felt like I was missing experiences both as a reader and also as a writer you know that I was only reading the sort of novels that I wanted to write um, and actually I was missing out a lot of things which were very interesting and which I would add stuff to my practice um, and particularly this year I've been trying to read books about um books about writers and about how writers write and sort of books about what that means to be a writer and I think that's been really really helpful trying to look at it at a different angle um, I think sometimes as a writer you can get quite myopic and you can think what is going to be helpful for this book at this moment but actually spreading your gaze wider I think is sometimes really useful. Do you find that you um I, I, I suppose I'm interested to know whether you feel that you do you learn things that you think you're going to kind of bring into your practice or is it more um, that you're interested in working out how other people do the same thing to, to you basically? Yeah I think I constantly learn things that I bring into the practice and it can be the most you know arbitrary thing that you think isn't going to appear and then later it appears in something and you think actually you know you, you as a person you're taking in everything all of the time mm. um and you're, I think people are very porous and they take in things even when they're not really noticing um, and trying to be trying to be open to that and to research, which comes even when you're not purposefully researching, I think has been really important this year. Um, I think I want to talk more about the uh, the Celia Paul um, book and uh, and probably her as a writer as, as writer and as an artist. Uh, but I think this is going to link into the, the next question I'm going to ask you because I'm about a recent article that's made you think something you've uh, you've been thinking about. Mm. Yeah. So this again was about Celia Paul. This was an article that um, Rachel Cusk wrote about Celia Paul and also Cecily Brown. And again, I think sort of exploring the idea of. Um, uh, gender as an artist and um, being a woman as an, a woman as an artist and I suppose as a creative although specifically as an artist um, and it caused a lot of um, I guess furor when it came out I, I read it slightly later so I missed some of the stuff but it caused a lot of kind of anger I guess and it's quite a critical article I think particularly about Celia Paul um, and about her relationship with Freud and about this sort of sense that she she's given away a lot of her life to be an artist and is that something that you should do and is that something that men maybe don't do to be artists and actually that um you know that's something that we should fight against as women that you don't necessarily have to live alone in an apartment and um you know not see your children to be a, to be a woman and an artist yeah I, I remember the for all that it caused and I think I found it kind of interesting because I think all the 
in a way, Cusk was asking all the right questions, but I think she had a, it seemed like she had quite a strong agenda behind her. She uses some quite emotive, I think at one point she describes Celia Paul, who gave her, who gave her, well, not gave her away, gave him away, but when she had a child, her, she got her mother to raise him during his early years, and she devoted her time to being an artist, which to me, I think is quite a radical, impressive you know, decision to make, whether, you know, whether it's a right or wrong decision is not really the point. It's, you know, um, but Cusk describes it as a sort of an act of self-harm on mm. Paul's behalf, which I found quite, I don't know, maybe I found that strange because reading self-portrait, I remember being personally, I was much more struck by what Paul described, um, her relationship with her mother and her sisters. These were so important to her and the way that she keeps painting them throughout her life and still does to this day. I was much more fascinated by those relationships than the kind of, the sort of much more, I don't know, like traditional relationship she had with Freud or not traditional, but stereotypical in a way, the kind of classic older man, younger woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but then to read the, uh, the Cusk article, she seemed so hung up on this, but I don't know, maybe coming to it afterwards, what did you feel like? Hmm. Yeah, I think it was so interesting that Rachel Cusk was the one to write it because, um, because Rachel Cusk's whole sort of oeuvre in the last few years seems to be about, writing about the people she knows um in a ve- in very personal ways and um so it seems very interesting for her to sort of be commenting on that because i think that's something that comes up in celia paul's work is you know she has that really beautiful painting of yeah her her and her sisters sort of as a morning painting after them yes and this kind of idea of is that something that's okay you know can you do that to the people you love um um, which is something that Rachel Cust does often, I think. You know, she takes the things that have happened to her, but also the things that have happened to her sons and to her husband or her ex-husband um, and uses them in her work. Um, yeah, so it seemed like a very interesting person to write that particular article and I think brought that up um, for me. Um, you know, and also I guess reading, I was reading Nausgaard at the same time for the first time and this idea of you, how much is too much to do for your art, um, I think is really interesting. Um, but I love how you frame the Celia Paul as about the women that she's connected to, because I think you're right. I think that's really beautiful. And um, her relationship with her, with the women in her family is very intense and really, um, yeah, really amazing, I think. I think so. I mean, maybe also maybe I'm bringing it up now, partly because obviously your novel Sisters is on my mind. But there are, I think, these, I don't know, with, with Paul, it just felt that that relationship with her mother is so sort of, tender and beautiful but also traumatic but they have such a connection over the years and the the sort of sitting that the mother did for her time and time and time again um and looking after her child there's something so sort of incredible there that I just don't think I, I think also is very it's not the kind of relationship that I've read about before um and certainly not in such a kind of raw manner I don't know it was the thing that stuck with me most about it um, but you, I think you, uh, is there a particular reason that you've been revisiting the Celia Paul um, material recently? Um, yeah, it's re- research for a new project for the next book, okay. actually, which is um, in the very early days. So it's okay. probably going to change enormously and be a lot deleted. But um, it's really about, um, I suppose, it's so interesting, I think, because at, at almost every event I go to and I, you know, um, the characters in my book are often, I guess, unpleasant or unpleasant to the people that they're around but every event I go to someone asks me you know what's your relationship with your mother like what does your sister feel about this book um and so this I became began to become really interested in this idea of autobiography in fiction 
um, and the presumption that women are writing autobiography and fiction and also how much are you allowed to do that you know I think um, my my novels are not autobiographical but inevitably there are bits of myself in them um, and is that something that's okay to do you know should you check with the people that you're doing that with you know is Nausgaard completely out of line to um, <laughs> to write these books about his um, ex-wife which are, are very traumatic for her I think and um, yeah where are sort of the lines of that and how much are we allowed to do to the people around us to kind of benefit our own our own creativity is creativity kind of um, above and beyond all the thing that we should all be striving for do you feel affronted when people ask you those questions like you know um what's your relationship with your mother like what's your relationship with your sisters like because in what it's it's sort of so I can understand why people are interested as a very nosy person myself like I get I get that sort of underlying principle but I also feel that it it's sort of that's what your relationships are like in real life has absolutely no bearing in so many ways on what you write. I mean, fiction is fiction, right? Like, of course, you're going to bring things from your own life into it. But it does seem that women in particular get asked these questions over and over again. There must be an element of frustration there, I would imagine. It's particularly funny with my mum, because um, especially for everything under, she came with me for a lot of the events. So she was often <laughs> in the audience. And she just sort of had this very bemused expression on her face, because I suppose there's two ways that that you know that you're going to answer that question. Either you're going to say um, no, there's no relationship to my mum. I have a very good relationship with my mother, which I do. Or you're going to say, yeah, I have a very traumatic relationship <laughs> with my mother. <laughs> I had an awful childhood. Um, let me tell you about the awful things that happened to me. Um, so it seems a funny question to ask, and I think you're right that women get asked it more. And the presumption behind that seems to be that women can only write things that come from them. Mm. You know, we're sort of stymied um and lacking an imagination enough that we can only write about the things that happen around us um which is not true and I don't quite know where the idea has come from but it is something that arises again and again um and I think there are really brilliant writers who are sort of using that presumption a little bit um I spoke to Lauren Groff the writer mm. about this a while ago and I've got story collection has um throughout it these um two young boys um and she kind of said, you know, I have two young boys. And the reason I put them in there was because I knew that people were going to presume they were mine, but they're not mine. They're just two young boys and sort of actually using this and playing on that idea um, that people are obsessed with something having to be true for it to have some kind of basis. Mm. Well, in a way, I think, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be doing something like that in retelling the story in Hag, right? Because it's it's a sort of framed story in itself that it starts out with a writer talking about trying to write a retelling of the story that you're doing. And so you're, as a reader, you're sort of lulled into this false sense of thinking, oh, I'm reading about, you know, Daisy Johnson telling me about what it's right, like to write this story. And then very quickly, you sort of come to realise, of course, this isn't Daisy Johnson, the novelist who's, you know, in the story. Um, so you're sort of twisting you're playing with our expectations there as well yeah and the beginning of that story is um is is sort of true my family live very close to the place where the um where the story set and we did one Christmas some of us drive down there um and sort of have a like a stomp around and have a look and see what we could see um and I really did want to yeah take this idea of um what's real and what's not real and begin to um yeah play a little bit on the reader's expectations as you said yeah 
Mm. And in reference to the other sort of um, side of things you're talking about, this idea of how much you can use other people's um, experiences or lives or what you know about them in your fiction. I'm not going to ask you too much about this new project, obviously, but has any of the reading that you've done so far, has it sort of changed your thoughts on this or, or made you think about things slightly, um, slightly differently? Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think it has. I think that you have to step with care a little bit. Um, and, you know, writers can use whatever they want. But um, certainly for me, writing for, was for a very long time the most important thing, you know, in my life. And I think that's changed now. You know, I think as you get older, you make you make more connections, you, you know, you begin a family, you your family is increasingly more and more important to you and so I think um yeah I think it has changed what I think about that and I think um it's made me yeah think about what I can put into the writing um but I think I think this whole year has made me change my ideas and on writing and certainly you know my I think something about (laughs) being stuck inside all the time my sentences seem very different and I think um I'm you know it's my fourth book I'm working on now and I think um a lot of the things that I did when I was writing my first book I wouldn't do again yeah yeah I wonder how much of this is also a sort of growing process that we all go through that sense of um I don't know I mean I think looking back on how one behaves when one's younger you have the world is a smaller place in a sense you haven't kind of met so many people you haven't experienced so much there's something about that sense of realizing that um other people's lives are as full as one's own I want to ask you, uh, maybe moving slightly out of um, talking about your own sort of work and process, can you tell me about a film or a song or a TV series that you've been enjoying lately? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, like a lot of people, I suppose, um, have mostly not been leaving the house apart from to go for walks. So I've been sort of stomping very grumpily along the river um, and getting very muddy. And I've been listening a lot to (laughs) um, Gazelle Twins Pastoral, um which I don't know if you've um heard but feels particularly as a lot of Brexit stuff is happening um and a lot of sort of you know um I guess we could describe it as a uh, small town racism um it feels very very relevant to that and it's this out al- this album which kind of brings in a lot of different voices um this kind of plethora of voices which combine and um you know almost this sort of hysteria I think um is what it's about um and is really brilliant and is um I guess a very angry album which felt very relevant to the yeah to what some of us are feeling (laughs) do you always listen to music when you're walking or do you ever listen to audiobooks or podcasts yeah I listen to a lot of audiobooks I'm listening to the Queen's Gambit at the moment um which I yeah which I finished the tv series of and then was like that was and you know kind of felt very astounded by how it was plotted so I wanted to see how the writer had done it um and that's that's really interesting um I've been listening to a lot of literary friction um who yeah do brilliant podcasts with writers um but increasingly I think I think our brains all feel very full at the moment I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things going on a lot swirling around and I think music is really helpful um in that way to silence some of that stuff yeah I'm always when I go for walks I tend to listen to audiobooks or podcasts but then sometimes I think maybe I should just be 
communing with nature in a I don't or you know just having a bit of a break from it all because I think being stuck at home you're right all the time you I feel like I'm always sort of reading watching a film watching tv doing something and maybe I just need a, a, a break but then I feel like I'm wasting my time somewhat so I don't know yeah it's a it's a tricky one um but that's a great recommendation for an album you've also I think you also mentioned that you've been watching quite a lot of Penelope Cruz films as well is that right yeah so I was um yeah, I was watching a lot of real crap <laughs> um, kind of on television and on films. And I was like, you know, this is not making me feel very good. It's sort of making me feel like my brain's rotting a bit. Um, and so st- so watched um, the film Everybody Knows, which she, she is in and which is about um, her daughter is kidnapped um, and she's in a small town. She's sort of gone home to this small Spanish town um, and um, a lot of things from the past are sort of rising up. Um, and I kind of, I, you know, she's just so brilliant. And I think the films she's in, are, she's in a so good on family drama and family dynamics. Um, so I've been then now slowly beginning to revisit from a Maldivar, um, which is such a pleasure. Um, and they're, they're so much funnier than I remember them being as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is that. Um, it's quite good to have a mission like that or a kind of organised sense of, right, I'm going to watch these because um, there is so much television out there that you can easily get sucked into things that are not so great, let's say. I mean, speaking from my own experience of a, a year of sitting here watching a lot of telly as well. Um, but, you know, you also said you watched The Queen's Gambit, which I think everyone's been enjoying quite a lot. So there's something there. <laughs> lots of different, yeah. lots of lots of different options do you speak spanish at all when you watch the penelope cruz films or are you watching no. them okay. yeah sadly not do you speak spanish no god i wish i could i'm just wondering whether i suppose i imagine there's lots of people i maybe there's not but i have this idea that other people in lockdown are sort of doing um bettering themselves let's say sort of you know learning spanish by watching lots of penelope cruz films or this that and the other and whereas i'm just sat here watching bake-off which you know it's, it's great fun but <laughs> Yeah, maybe. I think maybe the first lockdown we were all um we were all slightly better we you know we were all like we're going to teach ourselves to make bread and we're going to do all of these things and then by this lockdown you know yeah it's interesting you're talking about sort of having challenges in films my partner and I watched all the Mission Impossible films and by the end I was just like, I don't know why we're doing this to ourselves like <laughs> they're not good <laughs> they're making us feel really sad <laughs> It's tricky though, isn't it? I think finding the balance between watching something that is sort of escapist and maybe sometimes a bit silly and something that you don't really want your brain to work too hard on, particularly if you have spent the day writing or reading or that that sort of thing anyway. Um, and then, but then sort of feeding after, yeah, how many nights of Mission Impossible that maybe I need to watch something. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there, so there's no, I'm not... <laughs> I have watched some terrible things this year. I can, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I mean, I am ashamed to admit it, but I'll still say it. Our shells will be back in just a moment. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy. You're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I've been talking to Daisy Johnson about the terrible films we've watched in lockdown, but we're also trying to better ourselves and watch uh, more intellectually stimulating things these days. Uh, next up, Daisy, I wanted to, um, I've asked you to pick a photograph that you treasure. Um, could you describe it to me and tell me a little bit about it, please? Mm. Yeah, so I felt a bit stumped by this, um, by this question. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to think of something clever that Lucy will be really impressed with. <laughs> um, and so I thought about Francesca Woodman, who I was, I looked at a lot of her photos when I was writing Sisters, and they were really impressive um, to me. But actually, I think there's a photo on my wall, which is my parents, um, very looking very, very young. I think they're probably about 27, 28. Um, and it's them with me in the middle, and I'm on one of those sort of crazy baby bouncing things that you hang from... Um, the frame of a door um, and I think just in this year oh, I'm, I've been a lot luckier than a lot of people I know some people haven't seen their parents all year and um, my parents live about two hours away so in yeah in better times I've been able to see them but much less than I normally would so I think it's been very important to have those sort of reminders them of them around and to be able to ring them and talk to them um, I'm also um, I'm pregnant so it's strange looking at that photo of them with a baby and then thinking about me having a baby you know my mum and I've been having some conversations about what happens to your children when they have children and um, are they still children and um, you know is she is she still a mother in the same way and I think um, that's all sort of been swirling around my head a little bit. Is um is this going to be her first grandchild? It is, yes. The first grandchild on either side of our, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's going to be, yeah, it'll be a lot of different emotions then. I think that makes perfect sense. It's interesting. So many of the guests um, we've had on the show so far have, have chosen um, photos of their of their family and often photos in which their parents are younger or and sometimes there is a child in there. And I think so many people have spoken eloquently about um, these photos being wonderful sort of portals into the life that their parents had before they were parents if that makes sense um and I think I don't know even just thinking about what you're saying now this idea that now you'll be looking at that photo and thinking you know I'm now going to be the the mother um uh, and the sort of the difference between what does that how does that change the family dynamics and I think these it's sort of fascinating that um these photos seem to they sort of hold all these different stories of different people at different points in their lives. And they are different people in a way, like your parents before they were your parents would be different people. You before you become a parent will be a different person, a, a person that your child will never know. And that, I don't know, that, I sort of find that fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think you definitely have that sort of strange moment with your parents where for a long time, you don't, you don't really see them as separate people from yourself. You know, they're just part, they're, they're the people who bring you food and they're part of you. And, and then, yeah, looking at photos like that when, um, does make you realize that they're entirely different people. And we spoke a little bit about, I guess, empathizing with, um, with the people around you a little bit more, which I think happens more and more as you get older. And, 
I suppose happens as you as you write as well um fiction and non-fiction and you know and anything I think yeah beginning to kind of see the boundaries of yourself and see the boundaries of other people and yeah which is sometimes hard with your parents because they are also the people who should always be there for you you know mm-hmm. and they should do whatever you want them to do <laughs> did your mum has has she had any answer yet about whether she thinks that she, does she think her relationship with you is going to change drastically or is she still just not sure about what's going to happen yeah she said we're very very close and we talk a lot and I think she thinks it will change and so obviously she's very excited but um but I think both of us are also a bit um we're losing something at the same time as gaining something Mm -hmm. um but mostly I think she's just excited and she she began before I got pregnant very firmly saying I'm not going to do any babysitting you know (laughs) and that that has definitely changed a lot As we've gone along, I think I'm going to have to throw her out of the house at some point. So, <laughs> no, this is all good. You need to run with it. Like you know, the, the, the more that she spends, you know, that's great. That's really good. You'll be you'll be very grateful for it. I'm sure when it actually arrives. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very very helpful. I think um, by the time maybe um, I'm one of three, so maybe by the time my brothers had children, it might the sort of allure of the baby might have worn off a bit. So I'm very lucky. <laughs> exactly. Get the baby sitting in while you can, because if it was later down the line, she'd be she'd have a fill by that. Point. So, <laughs> uh, next up, I want to ask you about. Um, uh, could you name a novel and tell me a little bit about it and why that you always recommend to friends? Yeah, so this was a hard question because I think the novels that I recommend to friends change a lot, um, mostly because I suppose I, I I am friends with people who read the same sort of things, so we're mm. always sharing books back and forth and lending books. Um, but the book that I would give I think to a new friend is probably um, a book that I read when I was a teenager and sort of I blew my mind in that way that maybe only your mind can be blown when you're a teenager reading a book Um, and it's called uh, Miss Miller's Feeling for Snow by Peter Hogue. (laughs) Yes I remember this was a book it was very um, I think I was yeah I was I'm not as young as you by any stretch but I remember being sort of young when it came out I think Um, and people loved it didn't they? Yeah, I think it. I think it's just completely brilliant, and um, I've tried to read some of his others, and he hasn't succeeded in quite the same way with anything with any other book apart from this one. But it's um, yeah, this sort of crime thriller set in very very cold Copenhagen, um, but also very weird and kind of on the edge of real at times. Um, yeah, it's just completely brilliant. I I I don't know if I'm right in thinking this, but also it seems. I mean, the sort of idea of a sort of noir chiller you know sort of those kind of things that are set in um northern european countries has become very popular in recent years but this was quite early it was sort of not it wasn't riding that wave as it were it was kind of before that wasn't it and it's quite and it's very literary book as well Mm. yeah that's interesting i didn't even think about it like that but it definitely shares a lot with the sort of yeah the danish crime dramas that we're all watching and the main character is definitely the kind of main character who would be in one of those you know very solitary and difficult um and yeah maybe a little bit obsessive and yeah yeah I don't I feel like it's not um considering I suppose considering how popular it seemed at the time I don't hear it mentioned quite so much these days when other people in that I mean it's different but the sort of Joe Nesbo type you know that sort of um, northern European crime stuff and I suppose tv series as well there's been so many of them um but this is probably something that I imagine our listeners will, if they haven't heard of it, will be keen to go back to. It's a great recommendation, actually. Makes me want to go back and read it again. It's been such a long time. 
<laughs> yeah, I used to read it once a year um, and that sort of faded away but um, I, I wonder if it's not recommended in the same vein as those because it is quite it's quite slow um, mm. you know part of its charm is this sort of this you know kind of four pages of a man making very beautiful coffee um, and it, it's kind of very like almost domestically boring which I really found yeah found very moving when I first read it I think yeah you're right I'm I'm sort of bought a throwing it in with other things but it's got elements but definitely not exactly the same once a year to reread something it's quite right that's quite often in a way I mean did you get something did you find that you were getting something new from it each time or was there the feeling of coming back to something that you um knew would be a sort of comfort read for want of a better word yeah so I haven't done this for a while but when I was in my early 20s I was reading it every year and I think it was um, I guess at, at that point you're changing so much aren't you and you're kind of you're you're different almost every week and um life's changing around you so book uh, rereading a book is this sort of strange thing where the book hasn't changed but you maybe have and the things that you mm -hmm. pick up from the book are very different um but also I love rereading and I think I've been rereading a lot of things this year because it is comforting to know the plot and so to sort of be able to look for different things in the writing and um yeah see what else you can find yeah no I think you're right a lot of people have been rereading stuff um I guess it's safer and yeah more I certainly did a bit of my, myself at the beginning of the first lockdown um, of rereading. I was really rereading a lot of Joan Aiken's children's books oh, as a, because they were so, I think for that reason, they were so comforting. And it was just the idea that I'd be wrapped up in the story for a while and would know I would enjoy it um, in a way. Uh, next up, I want to ask you uh, if you could tell me about a book or books that have made you think about feminism in a new way. Mm. I'm always fascinated by the answers to this question. People choose such different books and often things that I don't think of at all. So, Oh, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to, I'll have to listen what other people have said. But um, yeah, because I've been pregnant and I, um, I'm a bit of a manic planner, which <laughs> is both helpful when you're pregnant and unhelpful. Um, uh, there's like a, there's an awful Will Smith phrase which is something like um, be prepared so you don't have to get prepared <laughs> which I found myself sort of like shouting at my partner <laughs> over the last few months <laughs> um, so I've been trying to read a lot a lot of books and but also be a very relaxed person um, and thinking a lot about motherhood and one book I read um, recently was um, I'm Not Your Baby Daddy by Candice Braithwaite which is a book um, about the black British experience of having a child um, and how, um, you know, I people should go read the book because I'm not going to explain it in, as well as she does. But, um, you know, the figures of um, the, the figures of death for, for black children are so much higher and the experiences of black women in hospital are, you know, exponentially worse than the experience of white women in hospital. And I think it really you know I think pregnancy makes you think a lot about what it is to be a woman and um and I think it it was very important for me to then go off down that lane and think about um it from that point of view as well you know think about the privilege of pregnancy um and you really do notice I think when you start reading pregnancy books that every single baby in the book is white um mm. you know and able-bodied and um and yeah that's a strange thing to realize I think yeah. Have you been, I mean, because right, obviously that's um, nonfiction, but there's been a sort of, in the last few years, there's been such a push towards writers exploring ideas of motherhood, um, 
in both fiction and nonfiction, I think. And have these been books that you've been um, reading along the way and interested in before you were pregnant? Or is it uh, are they things that you're maybe coming to now for the first time? Mm. Yeah, the last couple of years, I read a lot of the ones that were coming out, I think, and um, particularly the ones which were maybe ambivalent about the idea of having a child. You know, the mm. Sheila Hetty was really, really interesting. Um, and there's also the Rachel Cusk wrote one about the which is a brilliant book I think but but quite um yeah quite confronting I think when you're about to have a baby (laughs) yes I had a friend who um was reading a lot of stuff when his uh, partner was pregnant and I recommended the cuss to him and then I wished I sort of hadn't afterwards when he came back to me and said that was a weird book to to thrust my way (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's really good to you know think about the reasons why you've decided to have a child and I think it, it is interesting that a lot of writers are uh, uh, thinking about these things and discussing them and you know I think it was um, I've always been interested in motherhood because I think it's very noticeable when you reach a certain age some people start asking you whether you're going to have a baby and you know what are you going to call your baby girl and like and this sort of strange pressure and inevitability which which I fought against for a really long time because um, it feels like men don't really get asked that question you know about whether they want mm. children whereas you know I think as soon as you look like you might be childbearing <laughs> as a woman you're it, it's almost a constant refrain um which is something quite heavy to carry with you I think when you're a young woman yeah no I think absolutely um and I feel like a lot of the recent writers that have been exploring motherhood have been pushing back on that as much as sort of leaning into it let's say that they are there's been some really good books that have been quite honest um, and, and raw about motherhood, like the ups and the downs, but also there's been that sense of saying, yeah, that it's not um, a sort of inevitability and it's also not anyone's business unless I want it to be. And all these kind of, um, I don't know, I think it's been a really, it's, I think as a reader, it's been a really interesting period to uh, be able to kind of um, explore the topic via such a kind of wealth of excellent writing so much of it's been really really good um and I sort of wonder where what's going to happen next are these books going to continue or is there going to be another wave of something different you know because things seem to come in these uh these great waves and I don't know what I don't know like as a writer I suppose I'm interested do you feel like not obviously everything's been said about motherhood but does it make you quite keen to um potentially write about your own experiences or find a way of, of threading them into your work um, or do you think that you'll want to keep a distance between the lived experience and what you're writing about on the page mm. yeah I think it's such a massive experience that um, inevitably you do think about it on the page and think about how you'd write about it but at the same time I think I don't agree with the kind of like oh every story's already been told and you know there's nothing new to say in writing but um, it feels like there's been a lot of talk about motherhood Mm. Um, and in potentially very um similar ways um the Candace Braithwaite being a different one than this but you know it kind of exploring the same vein um and in that kind of slightly unpleasant way that feminism particularly British feminism sometimes does have it seems to be you know women setting themselves against one another kind of like you know you're either very angry about the idea that you have to have children or you're very angry about the idea that you don't have to have children um, and I think I kind of hope that the writing finds this sort of inner ground maybe a little bit in the next few years. But yeah, as you say, it's a really interesting time to be a reader and to see how these books all respond to one another and 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 hopefully maybe move out of the echo chamber of it a little bit. 
Yeah, maybe that's it. There's just a slight sense that actually the story needs to be expanded slightly, whether that, and like you say, it goes back to something you were saying at the beginning about so many of these stories are about having, um, you know, there are most of the babies that are written about are white babies, they're able-bodied. There's a sort of sense of um, sameness about some of these things. Uh, and I think, I don't know, it's not, I mean, it's sort of tangentially related, but I remember the Sheila Hetty, for example, I felt quite sort of astonished in a sense that so many of the reviews about that book were written by women who were mothers and they would bring their mother their experience of being mothers into their reading which obviously makes sense but it seemed odd that there were fewer kind of single or women you know who who decided to be childless or child free however you want to describe it who were talking about that book that I don't know there is a lot of there's a big sense of who owns what this discourse I think going around which is still quite uncomfortable in lots of ways Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and seems very unhelpful for the discourse, which I think could be very interesting and very, you know, move us forward in in feminism, which we certainly need need to do. Um, but instead, we are sort of trapped a little in this stone throwing place of, well, you made the wrong decision. No, you made the wrong decision, and um, mm. and certainly, I don't think that's what it should be about. You know, I think it should be about that we're all that we're all being pushed to do particular things or to do them in a particular way, you know, to be a good mother in a particular way or to be child free in a particular way, and um, and but that but those are both the same thing you know those are both women sort of being told how to use their bodies um yeah so it does seem strange that we've taken these sort of very very strong different like sides of it if that makes sense mm, no definitely well let's hope that the next sort of um the next wave of of books about mothering motherhood however you want to put it sort of not being mothers being mothers is a slightly more expanded version. I suppose, I mean, that's what happens. You have to kind of break the first barrier in order to get to the second one, don't you? And so these have been important in lots of ways, but um, yeah, moving on. Um, And finally, Daisy, the last question I have for you today is um, probably another tricky one, but I wanted to ask you to name a woman you admire um, and tell us why. Yeah, I don't know why I found this one so hard. This one kept kept me awake at night. I think because there are so many... <laughs> no, as in, I think that's a good thing. I think there are so many women to admire at the moment, um, you know. And I think I really, I really wanted to sort of, um, yeah, talk about someone. I guess like Juno Dawson, or you know, women in the trans community who I think are having a really hard time at the moment, and who I think yeah. are, um, you know, constantly being put under a lot of pressure to. Um, to verbalize things um but at the same time I also wasn't sure I wasn't entirely sure whether I was the right person to have that conversation um so I've gone for someone a little bit um who I yeah I've gone for someone else I think which also takes us back to kind of the idea of um, motherhood and a person and it's um Shirley Jackson who um I it is maybe not the most exciting person (laughs) no this is a great pick she's a great pick don't worry um yeah who I've been rereading a lot of and rereading a lot of her essays um and she kind of she writes these um incredibly funny essays about motherhood and then also writes these very um these essays about writing and about you know she says I don't want to write these essays about motherhood I want people to know that I'm you know I'm a crazy woman who lives in a house with a ghost and um and this sort of battle she has between the two which I think is doing a lot of things that that the books are talking about you know all these motherhood books that we're talking about they're doing now but that she was doing a really long time ago you know she was the breadwinner in her family um from for most of her life I think 
and I think found writing very very difficult um and found motherhood quite difficult and there's sort of like the lines between those things I think she's just completely brilliant on Mm. no she's great have you read the um Ruth Franklin biography of her the um a haunted life a rather haunted life I think that's what it's called yeah it's so good it's such a good book but also I think one of the things that really struck me in that is um it's a little thing but Franklin's description of Jackson's um writing about her children raising demons and um I can't, uh, life with the savage life among the savages she describes them as sort of the earliest iterations of like mommy blogs that we'd recognize today and it's so true it's so kind of it's so spot on but also it's been sort of forgotten and neglected over the years that this was this other side to her and was the side of her writing that was really um it was the thing that made her the most money, wasn't it, during her lifetime and made her the most popular, whereas today we recognise the novels um, maybe slightly more. But I think Penguin is republishing, mm. is it Life Among the Savages or, or Raising Demons as a Penguin classic next year? So hopefully we'll see more interest in those. You yeah, know. that's exciting. Yeah, she seems, um, and I think the Ruth Franklin's so good on, um, I read it quite recently, on that we really try to, and I think this happens with, you know, writers like Angela Carter and Sylvia Plath as well, we really try to pin them down in a very particular, you know, like, this is who they were and this is the most important mm. thing about them. And I think often we focus on, um, we kind of focus on Shirley Jackson being, you know, she couldn't leave the house and there's sort of these, at the time everyone was obsessed with the idea that she was maybe a witch and that she was sort of <laughs> cursing people. Um, and I think Ruth Franklin, the Ruth Franklin book is so good on seeing what else actually that she's about um and that there's a lot more going on there which I think is really important thinking about women writers from that generation is kind of what else is around them at the time and how are they relating to the things that are happening and how forward thinking are they Mm. yeah and doesn't Franklin also is very good at putting Jackson in a large tradition of um sort of creepy American writing whether it's Hawthorne Poe Henry James like she sort of gives her the due that other people haven't given her in that sense as well of saying you know here's someone who's really really good at her craft have you seen the um Josephine Decker film Shirley that's just come out what did you think of that just briefly yeah I was really ready to love it and I didn't love it I didn't I didn't hate it I think that it um is interesting because it's it's based on a novel I think isn't it and it's so it's um and it's not supposed to be entirely um realistic it's supposed to sort of be a bit of a take on the story and I think we could have pushed that a bit further you know I think if you're going to take a take a biography and sort of um play around with it and break some things then you should almost go the whole way I don't know what did you think about it I actually quite liked it I think um I'm quite a fan of Decker's work anyway so I like her sort of creepy weird style um that you know I think a lot of people describe it as experimental it's not quite but it, you know that um I don't know I think it's no I mean no I, d- I did like it I could see why someone why what you're saying makes sense though that if you're going to break something down you might as well go a bit further because it clung to certain things and not to others and I suppose there's always that question of why did you like why get rid of all the children but then you know leave these other elements um but for me it quite worked I just think I mean I think you know Sarah um uh uh, what's her name? I've suddenly forgot. Gone. Elizabeth Moss. Yeah, sorry, Elizabeth. I don't know why I call, was called her Sarah Moss. I'm getting Sarah muddled. <laughs> yeah, too many good Mosses out there. But I thought um, Elizabeth Moss was so good in it um, as Shirley. And the guy who played her husband, who I can't remember his name right now, but I thought they were both uh, really excellent. And again, I think I liked it because I liked the fact that you, you sort of thought that it was a 
going to be about their relationship and it was to a certain degree but actually what was more important was a relationship between Shirley and the younger woman who comes to stay in her house um yeah so yeah yeah yeah, I think Elizabeth Moss is brilliant. Moss is brilliant, and certainly they get the atmosphere of the house really spot on. I think you know it's. It, I I was kind of at some point trying to turn up the light on my screen, but actually, right, it's just a really dark, shady film, which I think works so um, well and does. Fe- it, it feels like a Shirley Jackson house that she might write about, which I think yes. Yeah. Though in a way, now you've mentioned it, I'd sort of love to see your version of a fictionalised version of Shirley Jackson's life as told by Daisy Johnson, I think could be incredible. So <laughs> that would be really fun. I will give you a percentage if that's my next. <laughs> Please do. I mean, just write it. I'd be I just love to read it. I think that you'd be the perfect person to write that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Daisy. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today um, and for answering all our questions, even the tricky ones. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So good to talk to you. Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Daisy Johnson. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.